Once upon a time, Mrs. Pig was very tired. Oh dear, she said to her three little pigs. I can't do this work anymore. I'm afraid you must leave home and make your own way in the world. So the three little pigs set off. The first little pig met a man carrying a bundle of straw. Excuse me, said the pig politely. Would you sell me some of that straw so that I can build a house? The man readily agreed and the first little pig went off to find a good place to build his house. The other little pigs continued along the road and soon they met a man carrying a bundle of sticks. Excuse me, sir, said one little pig. Would you please sell me some sticks so I can build a house? The man readily agreed and the little pig said goodbye to his brother. The third little pig didn't really think very much of their ideas. I'm going to build myself a much bigger, better, stronger house than they, he thought. And he carried off on down the road until he met a man with a cartload of bricks. Excuse me, sir, said the third little pig, as politely as his mother had taught him. Would you please sell me some bricks so I can build a house? Of course, said the man. Where would you like me to deliver them? The pig looked around and chose a nice patch under a group of trees. Over there, he pointed. Then the three little pigs all set off to work and by night time the house of straw and the house of sticks were built. But the house of bricks was only just beginning to take shape. The first and second little pigs laughed at their brother because they thought he was silly having to work so hard when they had already finished. Then one starlit night after they had settled in a wolf came looking for food. By the light of the moon, he spotted the first house of the first little pig. He knocks on the door and we know how it goes. Little pig, little pig, let me in. And the pig replied, not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. So the wolf says, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house in. And that's exactly what happened. But the first little pig escaped to his brother's house before the wolf could eat him up. Now the next night, the wolf was really hungrier and badder than he was the night before. And he saw the house of sticks and he went up to the door, knocked on it and said, little pig, let me in. To which the pigs replied, not by the hair of our chinny chin chins. The wolf huffed and he puffed and he blew the house in. But the two little pigs escaped as fast as their trotters could carry them before the wolf could eat them. Then on the third night, the wolf saw the house of bricks and he went up to the door and he knocked on the door and he said, little pigs, let me in. They replied, not by the hair of the chinny chin chin of our chinny chin chins. So the wolf huffed and he puffed and he tried to blow the house in, but nothing happened. And he huffed and he puffed and he tried to blow the house in again, but nothing happened. The brick house stood firm. And although we know what happens to the wolf, the third little pig, I'm sure, turned to his brothers and said something like, I you know how important it is to build houses properly. And that is the moral of the story of the three little pigs. The moral is, be careful how you build. And the surprising thing about that story is that that moral of the tale, it comes straight out of the pages of scripture. Now, if you don't believe me, let me show you. Let's read together from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 17, which is our text this morning. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10 to 17. This is God's word. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones and wood and hay and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul has been calling for the church to be united together and not divided over who leads the church. Last week, we, or the week before, we saw verses 1 to 9, which was an agricultural picture that Paul used to help us to see the wrong way and the right way to view church leaders. Now, in verses 10 to 17, he shifts the view or the picture, the imagery, from agriculture to architecture, but the topic is still the same. It's still the church, and he is going to tell us about how we need to build carefully. It's the biblical story of the three little pigs. Now in verse 10 he tells us that he takes no credit himself but ascribes everything that has happened, all of his church planting efforts, to the grace of God given to him. And he tells us that he's been busy at work laying a sure and a steady and an unshakable lasting foundation which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he's been laying this foundation so that a building might be built upon the foundation. And in verse 16, we find that the building that's going to be built upon the foundation is God's temple, the place where God will dwell by his spirit. And it's not individual Christians because the language of you in verses 16 and 17 is plural. He's speaking about the church. But he has a warning for us. And he has a warning for all those who will follow after him and build upon the foundation that he's laid. And that's in the second half of verse 10. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, upon the foundation. Now, on first reading, of course, this immediately is applicable to those leaders in the church in Corinth who were building the church there. And Paul warns them, be careful how you build. Then if we look a bit closer and we read it again, we probably see that there is an application to church leaders today, like me and Matt and Peter, that we should be careful how we build the church upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And the idea of building, I think, is, is tied to what Paul has already said in the opening chapters of this letter. We're not to build with worldly wisdom and with worldly power, but we're to keep Christ and him crucified at the centre of the church. But the warning is sure, church leaders are accountable to God for how we will build the church. God is going to be like a divine building inspector who's going to come and scrutinise and assess and test the building work. He's going to check what we build against the building regulations that he set out in his word and in his gospel. And God is going to appear one day as this divine building inspector and he's going to make his judgments uh, known in the public domain. He's going to give a final verdict on who has been a wise builder and who has been a shoddy kind of cowboy builder. And so Paul warns us, be careful how you build. Now that warning should have two effects upon us. 
Firstly, it should strike a healthy dose of right godly fear into those of us who lead the church that we should be committed to doing God's work in God's way, by God's spirit, according to God's grace and strength for God's glory. And that warning does strike a healthy dose of fear in my heart. The second effect that it should have is to dispense a kind of a, a healthy dollop of humility to all of us who are members of the church who, let's face it, we're prone to judge one another and we're prone to judge church leaders when actually Paul says it's not our job to do so. It's God's. Now, that's not to say we should never, ever ev evaluate the nature or the character of a man and his teaching. We should hold our leaders to the truths of Scripture. But in doing so, we've got to remember that our, our judgments are limited they're limited due to the perspective that we have. They're limited due to our knowledge of the facts and the situations that we may pass judgments on. We're not privy to the human heart motivations of those involved. And our judgments are not uh, decisive or final. We should be giving the benefit of the doubt and open to change our minds as other information becomes available. But Paul here wants us to all rest assured that God will assess how his church is built. And he will do it with characteristic thoroughness. And he will pass a judgment on what is built and how it has been built. So leaders are to be careful how we build. But in addition to that, when you take the context of 1 Corinthians it, more widely, that it's a letter written to the whole church and not just to the leaders of the church. And when you see the, tra the trajectory and the direction of travel that Paul is on that culminates in chapters 12 to 14, where he talks about the church being Christ's body and that every member is a member of the body and that we all have an important part to play to contributing to the health of the body, to serve the common good of the body, to build up and to encourage and to edify the whole body. And then when you add that to the language that Paul uses here uh, in verse 10, where he says, let each one, and in verse 12, if anyone, and in verse 13, each one's work, and in verse 14, work that anyone has built, and verse 15, if anyone's work, when you put the context and the language together, what you begin to see is that this warning in verse 10 is not limited to church leaders, but it's equally applicable to all of us who are members of of the church. If you are a Christian this morning, regardless of your age, your gender, the gifts that God has given to you, the length of time you have been a Christian, or the situation that you currently find yourself in, if you are a Christian, you and I have been automatically grafted into God's construction crew. And we are part of what God is doing in the world through his church. Each one of us, if you like, has been given a hard hat and some steel toe cap boots and a high vis jacket. And we've been employed by God to be part of his construction crew in building his house. We might have different jobs. Some might be plumbers, electricians, uh, roofers, carpenters, window fitters, painters, interior decorators, uh, brickies. But we're all included in the construction crew. And therefore, the warning of verse 10b, the second half of the verse, is to all of us that we should be careful how we build God's church. And Paul's gonna tell us about three categories of construction workers that have three different outcomes. And the first one is this, he speaks about those who build well. 
those who build well. In verse 13, he tells us that a day is coming when Jesus will return in judgment and every single one of us, anyone who builds, will be assessed as to how we've contributed to the building of Christ's church. And in verse 14, he tells us that it is possible for us to build well, to use the right materials, the materials of high quality stuff uh, like gold and silver and precious stones, so that when the day of examination arrives and the divine building inspector arrives, he will assess our work and he will test it via flames, it says. And that work, which is built using good quality materials, will last. It will stand the test of time and the test of the flames. And so Paul is trying to make it clear to us that we should be careful how we build because there is a right way to build. There is possible to build in such a way as to make a lasting and an eternal difference for the kingdom of God. And if we do so, Paul tells us, we'll be rewarded for it. So building well, building with the right materials, is building in a way that reflects and honours and fits with the foundation that has already been laid. And for such a noble building as the foundation of Christ that's been laid, and the fact that God has designed it to be his temple, it requires the best, highest grade, uh, quality workmanship and materials, gold, silver and precious stones, that Revelation tells us is what heaven is going to be like, and they are fit for a king. But Paul's point is not the flashiness of the building or the value of the building materials. His point is that these kinds of materials last through fire. When they're tested, they endure. It's a picture of building well with an eternal perspective in mind. It's not just throwing up a glitzy, flashy, attention-grabbing building that somehow impresses the world around us and wins their plaudits and applause. But it's about building in such a way that it will last the test of time and especially the day of God's judgment. So it's doing God's work, that is the commands and what he calls us to, in God's way. That means reflecting him with Christ-likeness, doing it according to the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. Doing it according to God's word, as, his, as our guide, as the blueprint and the architectural plan that we follow. Empowered by the Holy Spirit for God's glory. Practically, it means this. <coughs> Excuse me. It means putting God first. Putting Christ at the centre of everything that we do. It means counting others more significant than ourselves and in honour preferring them. That's building well with good materials. It means serving one another for the common good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. It means investing the first fruits of our time and our money and our energy and our resources in what God is doing in the world through his church. And if we do that, if we build well with the right materials, we get a reward. Now, just think about that for a minute, because what Paul says here throughout the New Testament is that God has chosen us from all eternity God has chosen to set his electing love upon us. God has sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins. God counts all of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. God makes us part of his family. God puts us in a local church and builds us together with his people. God gives us the chance and the opportunity to build up that church family. God gives us all the grace and the strength and the gifts we need to do that. And then God gives us an eternal reward for doing it. It's quite scandalous really it's amazing grace so Paul tells us be careful how you build because if you want a reward you've got to build well 
Now, what is the reward? Well, we're not told exactly here, but I think we get hints in other New Testament passages. So, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Paul would write this to the Thessalonians. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you, the church in Thessalonica? For you are our glory and our joy. So one element of the reward is probably the joy that we experience of seeing the fruit of our labours, that our work lasts, that it's blessed others and that it's brought glory to God. Another hint is at the end of the parable of the talents that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, where he says this, the master comes to the faithful servants and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And so the idea there is that one of the rewards that we might receive is an experience, a heightened experience of of God's joy and pleasure and commendation at our hard work and efforts for the sake of Christ. So Paul warns us, let each person take care how he builds and let us build wisely and well. But then he's got a second, excuse me, category of construction workers. And this is those who build poorly those who build poorly in verse 15 we're told that it's possible to build in a way that will burn up that we could be one of the first two little pigs that build with hay and straw and wood the potential tragedy that Paul outlines here is that we got started on the right foundation but we've built a building that is made of rubbish what he get what he's getting at is this it's possible for Christians to live so poorly in God's church that we build in a shoddy way and in a slapdash way, using inferior materials that don't last, that will go up in smoke, that will burn to a heap of ashes and we will suffer loss. Now verse 15 tells us the loss that we'll suffer. It's not describing that the builder will lose his salvation. That's not possible because for those who are genuinely united to Christ, our security is in him and him alone. But we will suffer the loss of reward. The language here is, is almost this idea that he will, be, he will escape but through fire, that we've built a building that now God tests by fire and it comes crashing down amongst our, around our ears and we make it out of the burning building just in the nick of time, that we're saved by the skin of our teeth and our reward is lost. So the warning is to build well and not poorly because the stakes are high. Now, the question is, how do we know if we're building poorly? How do we know if we're building with bad workmanship and inferior materials? How do we know if our work is worthy and suitable for God's temple? Well, here's some some suggestions that I see in the pages of the New Testament. If we're holding to teaching and values and treasures and practices and preferences that replace Christ at the centre of our life and of our church, then we're building poorly. Or worse, if we're doing things that are completely out of step with the gospel. It might not be that we are outright heretics, but we compromise the truth of God's word. We try and sugarcoat it in order to make it more palatable and easier for the world to agree with us or swallow down. Perhaps we're serving the church with selfish ambition and vain conceit that we're trying to make a name and a reputation for ourselves instead of for Christ. That instead of living for the audience of one, we're seeking the approval of someone other than Jesus. Perhaps it's that we grumble and complain while we serve the church. 
or that we're investing the leftovers of our time and our energy and our money and our resources after we've spent the lion's share on ourselves, on our careers, or on the opportunities that we think we need to provide for our kids. Perhaps it's participating or contributing in the building only when it's comfortable or convenient for us. Or, more generally, it's attempting to do God's work, but not in God's ways. Not in God's strength, in our own strength instead, and certainly not for God's glory. We might sum it up like this, that building with hay and straw and wood is serving Jesus and his church with bad attitudes, with bad motivations and bad actions. And the warning from Paul here is that when the fire comes, we'll make it to heaven, but our backsides might be on fire. We'll escape as if from a burning building and that nothing we've actually built or done will last or stand. So Paul's warning is to all of us, let's take care how we build. Now the question surely is, don't you want to do everything possible to receive some unspeakably awesome uh, reward from God? I know I do. And lockdown and this period of life that we're in that's enforced a break upon us in normal church life is a wonderful opportunity for us to just evaluate and assess our building, our workmanship and the materials that we're using. So perhaps we need to ask ourselves some questions like these. How am I building? Is the building of the church the priority for me? Am I plugged in and playing my part or am I distracted by other things? How would God assess my building? Am I building well or am I building poorly? And what kind of materials have I been using? For the stakes are high, so we must be careful how we build. We can build well or we can build poorly. We can be, build well and receive a reward. We can build poorly and escape the fire but have no reward. And then in verses 16 and 17, Paul gives an even stronger warning as he brings to our attention a third category of worker. But this third category is not a construction worker. These people are demolition men and women. Demolition men and women. The third category is those who destroy. Those who destroy. Verses 16 and 17, let's read them again together. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that, the, and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are God's temple. These two verses offer a stunning affirmation of the church's corporate identity in Jesus Christ. We are corporately God's temple. Now in chapter 6, Paul's going to use the same metaphor and apply it to individuals, but right here, the language is plural and he's speaking about the church. We are God's temple when we're together. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are holy and set apart for God to demonstrate in time and space and real life the wisdom and the power and the mercy and the grace of God, and to demonstrate in time and space the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're people who have been called together as his body, as his church, to shine forth the joy and the life and the hope and the grace of God to an empty and a frustrated and a lost and a dying world. Verses 16 and 17 speak, I think, or give an indication of the high and the precious value that God puts on his 
church. We're his people, the place where he dwells. His house. It's a, uh, we, we could go to First uh, Peter chapter 2 that we did when we were doing our Peter series and see Peter takes all of the Old Testament images for Israel and applies them to the church. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, his special treasured chosen possession. The church is extremely precious and dearly loved by God because he has purchased us with the precious blood of his one and only son. And so against this stunning backdrop of our identity as the church, as God's people, as God's temple, Paul issues a stark and a strong warning. In fact, there's probably no stronger warning in the entire New Testament. Verse 17, where Paul effectively says, if the church is God's temple and where he himself dwells, if it's so precious to him, then he will surely deal severely with anyone who damages or destroys it. See, it's one thing to build with shoddy workmanship. It's one, build, one thing to build with shabby materials, but it's quite another to seek to demolish and to destroy what God is building. And the warning is to those who would divide and damage and destroy God's church. He will destroy such people. Such is his love, his care, his concern and his passion for his church. Verse 17 is a serious and somber and sobering warning to those who will willfully and willingly, carelessly and recklessly destroy God's temple. See, Paul isn't talking here merely about a a sin at a kind of social interpersonal level that we offend one another. No, he's talking about to destroy God's temple is to is to commit sacrilege against the Holy Spirit. It's and it brings about divine judgment. So in order to escape this, we, we surely the question you're asking right now is, what does it mean to destroy God's temple? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, I think it's, the warning is set in the context of, of Corinthians and in those opening chapters where Paul has been talking about people being divisive, people bringing division and disunity among God's people that people enter into the church or rise up from within the church and they're seeking to divide brother from brother and sister from sister and brother from sister to divide the body and ultimately to decapitate us from the head that they speak and they act and they operate in such a way that negatively affects a person's spiritual well-being and their walk with God and they seek to rob them of the grace and the peace and the joy and the security that should be ours in Jesus Christ. And it's not a warning to people out there. It's a warning to people within the church. It's a warning to all of us. Because all of us are, if we're honest with ourselves, susceptible to damaging and destructive behaviour. None of us are immune from this warning. We might sit there and think, well, I would never destroy God's church. But we could. And the first step of heeding Paul's warning is to recognise and admit our own vulnerability. So answer these questions. Have you ever gossiped about someone in the church? I have. Have you ever passed on a bad report to someone else about someone in the church? I have. 
Have you ever brought someone into a conversation in which they had no business in order to sort of gain an ally or to strengthen your position or your argument? Have you ever slandered someone, spread suspicion about someone, purposefully derided someone or criticized them behind their back in order to pull them down or to make them look bad in the eyes of others and to raise yourself up and to make yourself look good in the eyes of others? Have you ever sinfully judged someone or impugned someone's motives or assumed that your perspective on the way things are is the most accurate? I've done all of those things. And these and other actions are actions that destroy God's church for they tear down, they don't build up. It's like taking a demolition ball or a wrecking ball to God's temple. And these are no small matters which is why the warning is so strong. They happen in churches. They've happened in our church. They destroy churches because they divide brother and sister from one another and they divide the body from the head. That's why the warning is so serious. If you do these things, watch out. God will destroy you. That's why the New Testament is so full of warnings for Christians to not continue in relationships with people who are divisive and destroying the church. For when you try to divide God's church, it's not an innocent social disagreement or just a falling out. It is someone pitting themselves against God's Holy Spirit, despising the cross and the love of God. And God takes that so seriously. And so if you've done those things, if I've done those things, when I do those things, stop. Repent. Seek God's forgiveness. Confess them. Pray. Ask for God's help to change. Cast yourself on the mercy and the grace of God and discover that he is, his grace is bigger and deeper and richer and stronger to cover all of your sins and all of mine. And his power through the spirit is powerful enough to change us forever. And if we're in situations where people are speaking divisively, stop it. Warn them. And then the scriptures call us to have nothing to do with them. For God takes the preservation and the care of his church seriously. Let each one of us be careful how we build. For our own sakes, for our own rewards, for the health of our church and for the glory of Jesus. Now Corinth was full of temples and each temple was built to reflect the image and the character of the deity that they represented. We're the church, we're God's temple, so let us live in light of that amazing reality. We're God's people, bought by the precious blood of his son, loved from all eternity, loved for all eternity, and let's build our lives on that foundation, remembering that the energy to do so comes, like Paul says in verse 10, from the grace of God given to us. Let the foundation determine what we build, both in its size and scope and in it, the materials used. And let that foundation be all pervasive in what we do as a church. And let us recognize that Christ is not only the foundation under our feet, but he is the capstone who will sit atop all that we build. And we are called to display his glory. So let's commit to build well for the sake of ourselves, for the health of our church 
for the glory of Jesus. And let me pray for us.